Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Eric Devigny. I'm here with Scott Samuelson, an emeritus faculty member of the English Department of BYU-Idaho. And uh, this is a wonderful moment for me. This is a, a mentor of mine. Uh, Scott and I taught in the English Department for a number of years, and uh, I've really come to appreciate Scott's example as both a teacher and as a disciple. So welcome, Scott. Thank you, Eric. Uh, the first question you know, we'd, we'd like to ask is just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, uh, where you're from. Tell us a little bit about your family. My parents were junior high sweethearts in Sandy, Utah. And uh, the, the Second World War was very important in our family history. My father, from an early age, wanted to fly and um, got a job in California building airplanes during the Second World War. And by this time, my mother, he and my mother had decided to marry, and she went down to um, California to be with him. And he said to her, let's get married here, and when we get back to where there's a temple, I will take you to the temple. So they got married by their bishop at Forest Lawn and moved back my dad joined the Air Force um, and became a war hero, the pilot of a Martin Marauder B-26, 60 combat missions. Wow. And, um, but the dark side of that was that what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, th these were young men who were putting their lives on the line every day and They'd get back from a mission, and they'd have a fifth of whiskey as their um, part of their monthly ration. Right. And um, I don't know how much early interest my father had in the church, but I think his what we call word of wisdom, um, yeah. his addictive behavior with tobacco and alcohol, uh, were very hard on his body. He died at 49. Very hard on the marriage. My mother um, was disillusioned. Um, I, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture here, but since we're talking a little bit about ambiguity, I think being the, a child in an alcoholic home was an important part of my yeah. uh, upbringing. My mother, uh, early on in the marriage, trying to save, as she supposed, the marriage, decided that she'd go along with my dad. And she, they went to a officer's club party. She drank, she got sick, she threw up. And she said, you know, um, from that moment, I decided that I wasn't gonna go that route. I was gonna be true to my roots and I was going to embrace the church with or without Sam. And so she did. We traveled uh, as an Air Force family all over. Um, we went to Europe for the first time in 1954. I was seven. My father was stationed in the middle of France. And from there, we went to Germany and back to Paris, back to the States for a few years, and then back to Europe, or to Germany for three more years. So wow. during the course of all of this, um, my mother, became increasingly devoted to the church. And when we'd move to a new place, she would take us and she would become immediately active and 
take us with her. My father... Like through Europe and all those places all over, that you were? All over. And my father um, seldom, if ever, came. Sometimes he did, but um, and he was a binge drinker. You know, things would be great for six or eight months, and then I'd come home from school and see the door closed and uh, know that he'd be on a 10-day drunk or whatever. And so um, the church began to work for me um, I, I had a close relationship with my mother. I loved my father, and uh, he gave me many gifts. I mean, we played baseball together, and um, he taught me how to play golf and, and some other things, model airplanes we did together. But I, I, wanted, um, I wanted a priesthood father. Hmm. And so I was uh, blessed to have men in priesthood positions come into my life that I could identify, and they were sort of surrogate fathers. So did, did that for you, was it, did it create any tension for you as a young child to, to kind of have, um, you know, that, that great influence that your father was, um, but had that difficulty, and then there were other men that sort of helped to round that, that kind of father uh, example out, right? Round out that experience. Did it create any tension for you? I or? don't know. Uh, it must have. I, I yeah. think the answer has to be yes, but I don't think I, I felt it. It was one of those things that you compartmentalize as a child, yeah. and um, I, I just, I loved my father, but I, I mean, he, he would drive to a bar, and he would take me with him, and he, I would sit in the car, and um, this happened repeatedly, and I, I, I think I was a late teen before I started analyzing mm. what it was in his makeup that, that wanted me to be with him um, while he was doing that. Yeah. It was, I don't know, I, I, I still am not sure exactly, but uh, at one point as a 16 or 17 year old, and I had told him this, I said, if, if, you, if this ever happens again, I'll walk home. And it was about a five or six mile walk and I took back streets, so <laughs> he couldn't find me. And, and I, I know that he wanted to connect with me, and I, I know that he battled his addiction. Um, so, but I, I had a wonderful bishop, and uh, David Homer Yarn, Jr., he was a philosophy professor and religion professor at BYU, and I remember the day I was to be ordained an elder uh, prior to going on my mission. And he invited my father to the priesthood meeting mm -hmm. and invited him to stand in the circle. And um, that meant a lot to me to have these two fathers, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, one, my blood father, biological, and the other, my spiritual father, um, with their hands on each other's hands and on my head. And um, so David Yarn was a very important person in my, yeah. in my upbringing. Um, we moved to Orem finally when we left Europe when I, was, uh, when I began high school at Orem High School. And he was our bishop, and I just saw in him this wonderful combination of spirituality, 
service, intelligence, um, PhD in philosophy from Columbia, and good humor. And that became, for me, um, the model that I wanted to strive for. Well, and what, what a beautiful image. I mean, I just, I love that image of both of those men with their hands on your head, um, you know, representing the things that they do and the, and the, the love that they both had for you. And um, one of the things that's interesting, though, is, is you talk about the bishop and, and, and you talk about getting the Melchizedek priesthood, um, you also talk about your dad and, and, and driving to those bars and, and you being in the car. You know, it sounds like you could have gone either way, right? Following one example or the other. So why for you did you follow that example of, of, of wanting to get the priesthood, of wanting to have that testimony in the gospel? What, what do you think was the, the catalyst for your own testimony? Part of it was the negative. So I, I remember... My father is sitting on the couch in the living room in a dirty white terry cloth robe coming out of a 10-day drunk. Mm. And um, he was sitting there shaking. And I walked down the hall to go to school. And he turned his head and looked at me and said, never drink. And that two-word um, testimony of the word of wisdom was so powerful. And I had seen the pain that my, uh, his drinking had brought to my mother. And um, I mean, he wasn't an abusive drunk. He was, and, and we, the four of us were happy in our own way yeah. when things yeah. were good. We had wonderful travel experiences in Europe and um, they were interested in education. And um, the other was uh, just the, the reverse of that, seeing the happiness of in families and in individuals who lived the gospel, and um, that's that's what I wanted. And I think um, my mother wanted that for me as well. So um, I kind of left her out of out of this, but her influence certainly sure. would be a, a major thing. Yeah. Um, I will say that one of the great influences in my mid-teen years was the, the large, very active branch in Wiesbaden, Germany, where there was plenty of uh, work for the few ironic priesthood holders. <laughs> and I began to develop a taste for church service, um, just little Things. I mean, preparing the sacrament, giving a, a talk. We gave talks yeah. frequently. And what was it about that taste, though, that, that you liked? Um, it just felt centered. It felt true. It, it mm -hmm. felt like that's where home was for me. I, I just resonated toward it. I, 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 I must have needed that or wanted it. Um, it just worked. Yeah. just worked for me. And then um, another really important moment for me came my freshman year at BYU. Um, I had signed up for a Book of Mormon class with, I, I didn't know who the professors were, and even though my sister, two years older than I, gave me some suggestions, I had to fit it into my yeah. time schedule. So I'm sitting there at seven o'clock, um, and a, a young 
graduate student walked in and said, um, you may have been expect expecting someone else, but I've just been assigned to this class. My name is Jeff Holland, and this is my first uh, teaching experience in college. And of course, uh, for, a, for a person like me who's looking for wonderful role models, um, pretty hard to beat yeah. him as a teacher, as a person with a testimony of the Book of Mormon. I, I took the second half of the Book of Mormon from him. By, by then, I, by the second semester, I knew enough to get the card that would get me into his <laughs> class. Right. So um, I had read the Book of Mormon uh, under his guidance. It was the April General Conference that year, which happened to be on Easter Sunday, which happens every once in a while, as you know. Mm. And I was, I had decided to go on a mission. Um, back in the 60s, there wasn't quite the, okay, everybody's going, you're of age, you're going, right? It was more of a, are you going to go? Do you want to go? And I decided that I, I did. But I, I knew that I needed the spiritual confirmation, especially about the Book of Mormon. I, mm. I felt like it was true. I, I felt like the church was true. Um, I didn't have any beefs with doctrines or practices or anything, but I, I wanted the spiritual confirmation. So I fasted. I borrowed this old transistor radio from my grandmother, uh, went up, drove up to the other valley, to the Salt Lake Valley, spent the night in um, my, grandmother, my father's mother's home, went up to the ca canyon that early that Sunday morning of conference, and um, I, I believed that I could receive some kind of spiritual experience, so I parked the car and walked off the trail a little bit. Early April, it, there was still some snow, and, but it was, it was lovely. So I knelt down and, and said a really long prayer, five minutes, and, uh, <laughs> and sort of said, um, here I am, and this is what I have come for, and can you, wilt thou help me understand um, how having a testimony will help me serve a good mission? Is the Book of Mormon true? And uh, nothing happened, I thought. So um, I prayed again. I, I think it was another six-minute prayer this time. I expanded. And um, I wasn't desperate that I wasn't getting an answer, but I, I was expecting an answer. Yeah. So I looked at my watch, and it was time for conference to start, and so I found a place to sit, and I put the transistor radio there and turned it on. And um, in the economy of God, it was through the tabernacle choir and the voice of the living prophets that the answer to my prayer came. And it came with such power and forcefulness because the message was about Christ and his atonement and the resurrection as that is administered through the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was absolutely clear to me at the moment and has been 
all these years that that was um, irrefutable personal experience. And then interestingly, there was a dividend blessing that I have wondered over all these years. And the only way I can explain that is when the conference was over and I picked up the radio and walked back toward my car, nature had become quickened and my eyes and ears to perceive it and everything I looked at, every um, the water in the stream, the rocks, the trees, everything was um, aglow and I was seeing it as I had never seen it before. Um, it wasn't what we generally call a spiritual experience, but given um, the fact that I love art and um, mm. it, it was just a, a great gift to me as if the Lord were saying, okay, here's the main thing, <laughs> but by the way, um, this can be expanded to include yeah. the whole world. Because, you know, it, it's interesting know, knowing you so well that, that um, you know, it's almost as if God is speaking to you specifically with your, your love of, of art, um, you know, both literary and, and other types of art. Um, that it's, it's just, a, you know, not only a, a testament of the restored gospel, but also a testament that he loves you and knows you. Um, thank you. That's true. And I want to tie that into my patriarchal blessing, which I received when I was 12 years old. And the patriarch, Elder G. Smith, the patriarch of the church at the time, we were headed to Europe. And he, the blessing speaks over and over about teaching, about teaching the gospel at home and afar. And this comes up three or four times in different places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and given that teaching has also been a foundational, um, a foundation of my relationship to Heavenly Father's children and to his church, um, that seems also to be a personal message. Yeah. Um, and so how have you tried to um, marry your love of the gospel with your love of teaching and your love of your students? Um, can I ask you to ask me about um, the complexity of... Sure. I mean, I, I, I want to answer that question, but cause, I, right, cause that my mind is on, on a slightly different yeah. tack. I, I want to... Um, to this point, it sounds like, oh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, it's interesting to hear your, your story about your testimony and knowing where your testimony takes you with your, your teaching career and reaching out to students. And of course, you know, I, I was interested in how that fit in with, with your students, but I also know too that part of that, that teaching and that giving of your testimony to your students has to do with the testing of that testimony, right? And that it comes from a very real and sincere place. I mean, it does already in the stuff that we know about 
about you growing up and, and about you know, your experiences with your mom and then your dad and then your bishop. And so, so we'll back up and ask that question. So with this testimony that you gain, right, up, up there in the, the mountains above Salt Lake, um, so from there, what, what happens with your, with your testimony? How does it grow? I mean, there, there are certain experiences that you find, um, you know, that you have to deal with uncertainty or with perplexity that you felt strengthened what you felt in those mountains? Yes, um, let me give you a couple of instances. I was, this was, I think before my mission, it might have been after, I was taking a philosophy class and there was a young man in the class who was obviously very bright, charismatic, good-looking. I didn't know him well, but we chatted a little bit before class, and um, I asked him about the mission, and he said, I've received a mission call. And I said, oh, great, where are you going? And he said, well, I've decided not to answer it. And I, I thought, really? Yeah. And um, that was one of my first encounters, I think, with um, a, a person who, who had so many gifts, intellectual as well as other gifts, but who apparently didn't have the gift of faith uh, and service, at least enough that would take him into the mission field. I also remember an experience with uh, Dr. Bishop Yarn. I, in those days, became enthusiastic with the intellectual um, aspects of the church. And I, for me, a symbol of that was Dialogue magazine. And so I, I, I went into his office one day kind of enthusiastic about <laughs> this. <laughs> he would have none of it. I mean, it was complete. Uh, he saw some things that I didn't see about um, how that direction could lead to um, to some disappointments, and I, mm. um, I, I loved him so much and wanted to be like him so much, and yet I also wanted this intellectual church life. Yeah, and so I, I, I was a little perplexed by that. that. How did how did you find that intellectual church life? Like so, so I mean that that experience it seems uh, well. I mean I know it's formative, right? That that you recognize that you have this desire. Um, I know that you have that intellectual gift. So, so how do you, where do you take it from there where you're, you are using that intellectual gift and yet also marrying that with your testimony? Yeah, I, I don't think I could have formulated it exactly that way when it ha happened, sure. but I remember distinctly walking from his office. I know exactly the, the spot and the time. And this was my decision. It was a conscious decision. I am going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow the path that David Yarn has followed. I could be an intellectual if I chose to be, and I'm going to do the other one first. And so I've, I've been interested in ideas, and um, I love talking and analyzing them, but um, I, I made that decision pretty early. And I think uh, all of these experiences kept me on a, what I consider to be a very difficult mission. And um, I encountered perplexity on my mission. What in particular? Big time. 
Yeah, what, well, what was it I mean, the basic besides? idealism, I'm going to Germany right. to convert <laughs> <laughs> the Germans to yeah. uh, the truth. And problems with uh, apathy and companions and sure. um, m my mission. I, of course, I had authority issues because of my, my relationship to my dad, but I, my mission president and I didn't really click. There was a, an experience where a fellow missionary that I was, a sister missionary, that I was sympathetic toward had a psychotic episode and oh, um, wow. she, her parents ended up coming and getting her, but I felt like that was not handled well and so that was hard. How do you explain that? How, how yeah. anyway. So so how did you keep that experience, though, from changing some of these spiritual feelings and these idealistic feelings that you, you had earlier? How did you keep that from, from making you bitter or from souring you on some of the beliefs that you had? I, well, teaching was important because before my mission, despite the patriarchal blessing, I, I had thought that I would be an architect or something. And then um, in my very first city in Aachen, they, they assigned me as a brand new missionary to teach three 10-year-old um, German boys. And so this was great because, I mean, I had lived in Germany and I knew I had a little German from that and I'd taken two semesters at BYU and then the language training mission experience, I had wonderful teachers. Um, and I got to teach these boys and I could ask them any question about the language or anything and it was just it was fun um, and periodically uh, when we got to teach the missionary discussions of course which wasn't very often mm -hmm. it was a great treat so most of the teaching I did was in church because I was in these tiny branches in central yeah. Germany and they needed someone to Give a talk. Elder, can you are good for a talk today? Yeah. <laughs> can you teach the lesson? We, the teacher didn't show up. Can you teach the lesson? And I, I developed this uh, love for teaching. And, and people would say to me, what are you going to do when you go back to America? Well, I'm a student, you know, I'm at the university. Well, what did you study? Well, general education. Well, what are you going to do with that? Well, I don't know. I, I really like teaching. And over the course of two years being asked this frequently, I, I came to the realization, and I think this was a spiritual gift, that the Lord, line upon line, opened uh, to me the vision of my future career. And the way that career has played out, um, even though I taught at the University of California at Irvine when I was getting my PhD and I taught at the Air Force Academy Prep School, so I haven't always taught in um, church settings. Yeah. But when the opportunity came to be at Ricks College and then stay, um, and even in my post-retirement going to SVU, I, I have this yearning to serve by leading discussions about English or literature or writing um, in a setting where the principles of the gospel can be dovetailed with the, with the secular, so-called 
literature. So, so is, it that, is it that dovetailing? Is that the thing that, that the benefit that you felt all those years ago in Germany, that the, the, restor- the, you know, the, the feelings of, of restoration that you got, spiritual restoration from, from teaching those boys, or I mean, is that that interlocking, is, is that what you felt was the thing that, that kind of kept you going spiritually? Yes, and uh, the conversations with a few of the members, but especially with fellow missionaries, you know, that we would we'd talk about some of the problems that we were encountering and some of the uh, gray areas or ambiguities in the gospel or in missionary life or whatever, and that those conversations um, and explorations through language, um, I, I was determined to keep going. Yeah. I had, I think I, uh, they didn't call them trainers back then, but I was a trainer to, I think, five new elders. And four of them went home early from their missions. This is what I mean by sort of an ambiguous. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, some health problems, some testimony problems. Um, I, I, I can't remember all the details, but that was a complexity that um, here are some new missionaries and I'm supposed to teach them how to be a missionary and how to have a testimony and how to stay on their missions. And I felt like a failure. I baptized no one. And back in the day, you know, the baptisms were right. kind of emphasized. Right. And, and, and I know that... Um, there were other things. I, I did introduce a couple of people uh, who were baptized, and I strengthened the branches, I think. Yeah. I loved the people, and um, so all of those were rewards that yeah. I think formed the direction that I would continue to go. Yeah. Well, you, you think about all the, the students that you've taught, right? I mean, th- that... Um I can call it, you know, the, the spiritual gift that you had that, that was developing on your mission um, was, was one that carried through your entire career and, and reaching out to people um, through all, all those students that you've had for all those years and being able to help them um, either with, with, you know, aesthetic issues in, in one way or the other, literature and art, uh, but also with issues in the gospel as well. Um. I have loved the bringing together of uh, critical thinking and critical writing and research and analysis um, with gospel principles. It's just worked for me, I think, for my students in a way that I hope hasn't compromised either of those areas, but it's just um, the synthesis of the intellectual gifts that we are given and the heart gifts, the ability to love and to see the workings of the Holy Spirit and and our Savior in our lives. Um, I'll just mention another area of perplexity and ambiguity and and that's parenthood. And um, we have eight children and um, some of our children have struggled with various kinds of issues, pornography, 
drug addiction, um, doubt, and um, at those moments when you absolutely don't know what to do, you see this person that you love so deeply um, on a course of apparent self-destruction and um, the tough love that is required to get them into the drug rehab program mm. again and again and again. <laughs> it, it, um, you pray in ways that you have never prayed before and yet somehow um, the Lord is there in the home and we, there were many ways that we were inadequate as parents but we tried to keep going to church and reading the Book of Mormon every morning despite great degrees of <laughs> sleepiness among <laughs> our children. And over the long arc of our parenting, those habits and attitudes seemed to work. They bore fruit. Um, to this day, um, not all of our children are uh, fully in the gospel. Um, that doesn't keep us from being absolutely devoted to them and loving yeah. to be with them. And one of the great joys of our parenthood is to see our children's friendship with each other and their children's yeah. um, so we sometimes think of the gospel in this kind of narrow, um, I don't want to say lockstep because I love the ordinances. Sure. I love having those covenants. I love administering those ordinances. But um, for me, the world of the gospel is expansive. It, um, it embraces all those moments when my father stood behind me showing me how to put my hands on the golf club and that father smell, yeah. which was partly unpleasant, but partly pleasant. Yeah. And going to the wood shop with my sons and going on outings with my daughters, mm. watching their lives unfold now as parents and um, the the gospel gives a sweetness to all of this that is undeniable and I uh, I think there are many people who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are happy after their fashion they live good lives yeah. and, and they, they do good things. But for those of us who have um, begun to taste the sweetness of the fruit, there, there really is nothing else that will do. Right. The kingdom of God or nothing. And for me, I've chosen to do my best to head toward the tree. Well, and what, what is so remarkable about you, Scott, and I can say this from, from knowing you and, and, and knowing some of your children and knowing some of your students, 
that um, one of the things that you do best in your teaching, aside from all the gifts that you have and you know, with the pedagogy in the classroom, is um, you teach best by, by who you are. And um, it's one of the things I've always admired about you is, um, and, and loved about what you said, is that, that sweetness that you feel, you know, going all the way back to those moments with your dad and those moments with your kids. And, and it's not about um, how easy or difficult those moments are. It's just that those moments exist and, and that they all become a part of this thing that have, uh, the, this, this part of your life that has brought you joy and connected to the gospel. And it's become um, really just a part of who you are. And that's the thing that I think we see in you as a, as a teacher. You see it, but I don't particularly <laughs> see it. I'm, it's just so trust me. It's so close. It's so close. All, all I know is um, I know what, I know where I want to be. And I know when I see something that seems counterfeit or a detour or um, doesn't, doesn't work. And for me, um, this model of, of embracing the complexity and the perplexity, um, but keeping sight of the ideal and that, um, that informed faith, that simple but informed faith, that's, that's where I want to be. It, it's what works. The other stuff doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. that's excellent. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate it.